Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's where W-E-A-R and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Welcome to Close Source, the podcast that is so excited about all of your work stories. So please keep them coming. It's been so amazing to hear all of your personal experiences with your jobs, both good and bad. And it it's helping me see that we have a lot of work to do. So please, please keep sending them to me. I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 75, which is a pretty big number. And we're getting deeper into labor month. We have all kinds of labor talk, hashtag labor talk, is that a thing, um, in today's episode. Our special guest is Sarah, and she's here to talk about modern slavery, the severe exploitation of other people for personal or commercial gain. We're going to talk about prison labor, marriage schemes in India, and so much more. These are things that are happening around the world right now, but just don't get a lot of coverage in the media. They're sort of like open secrets. And I'm really committed to talking about this stuff more and more. So I I can't wait for you to listen to our conversation. Before that, I have three more work stories from members of our community, and like I said, please keep them coming. Sharing our stories is so important for helping others see their own experiences more clearly, and it helps us all create our own values and priorities when it comes to where we work, how we work, and who we give our money. So keep them coming. You can email them to me. You can call the Close Horse Hotline. That number is in the show notes. Or you can record a voice memo on your computer or phone and send it to me. And remember, I'm not looking for work stories just from the fashion industry. I want to hear about all the jobs. Because one thing I really want to illustrate this month is that all of us, no matter what industry we work in, we've had some bad jobs. We might have some bad jobs right now. And and we shouldn't, you know? So keep them coming. <laughs> Before we get into all of that, let's thank a few of our newest supporters via Patreon. First is Beth Chiarizio. And Beth, I hope I didn't just blow up your name there. I practiced it multiple times. Uh, Beth has a cat named Dieter, which I originally read as Dieter, because that's where my brain is right now. And she's another Pittsburgher. You know, Pittsburgh is always coming out strong for Close Horse, which is amazing. Um, Thank you so much, Beth. I just wanted to add that I've never met a Beth in my whole life who wasn't the raddest person. Next is Susan Gregg Coger, someone I had the opportunity to work with at ModCloth, and she posts some of the best travel photos ever on Instagram, along with a lot of much-needed dog content, and not her dog, but other dogs. So thank you so much for your support, Susan. Next, we have Kyla Coolidge, who runs Cool Threads TX, where she sells, quote, a curated closet of vintage and gently owned pieces available on Poshmark, Vinted, and directly on Instagram. 
Also, I have some important intelligence from Kim, who runs the department's Instagram, co-hosts the pod with me. Kyla is, and is it Kayla? Kayla, am I blowing this? I'm so sorry. Um, She's a home ec teacher. So you know, I feel super honored to have her as a patron. And thank you so much, Kayla, Kyla. I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm really grateful for your support. Lastly, but not leastly, I would also like to add that Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl became a Pegasus sponsor. And thank you so much, John and Lydia. Lydia is a regular contributor to Clotheshorse.world with her parent trash column, which I love so much. If you're interested in joining this group of the coolest people ever by supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money or by recommending the podcast to others, sharing our content on the Instagram, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and you know, just for listening. That's really important. And I just also wanted to take a moment to thank all of the incredible guests that have appeared on the podcast so far. Um, Yesterday, when I was editing my conversation with Sarah, I just got really emotional about how many incredible, intelligent, talented, passionate people have taken the time to talk to me for Close Horse. And uh, it it just really moved me, you know, because to give me a few hours of their time like that shows that they really believe in what I'm doing over here too. And that's just, that, I'm just so grateful. Um, Well, anyway, before I get even gushier and sappier, why don't we listen to some work stories? All three of today's messages are anonymous because once again, that is totally an option because I don't want any of you to hold back. So just tell me in your message or your email that you want to be anonymous and I will ensure that all of the incriminating details, so to speak, are removed. So have I ever mentioned how much I just hate luxury brands? And I can't tell if it's because I'm from a lower class background or I just think it's so wasteful or I hate the idea of buying taste, like, oh, spending a lot of money on something automatically means you have incredible style. We know we know that taste is a classist construct anyway, so luxury is just a part of that classist bullshit construct, right? But man, I just like profoundly hate luxury. It is so painful to have to talk about it and hear about it all the time working in the fashion industry as this like gold standard of how things should be. But I do think there is a misconception that somehow luxury brands must be more sustainable and ethical just because they're selling more expensive stuff. But actually, these brands are known for destroying unsold product rather than risking it getting into the hands of, you know, poor people. They've engaged in some shady practices around country of origin labeling, meaning they'll slap a made in Italy or made in France label on an item, but that most of that assembly, creation, manufacturing, whatever you want to call it, of that item was done overseas, brought to this country of origin that's a little bit more aspirational to their customer, like France or Italy, and the final sewing was done there, like the finishing they also, these these brands just generally have little to no regard for sustainability and ethics. They don't feel like they have to. Their reputation is based on luxury, not 
doing good for the planet. And I would also add that despite these things being extraordinarily more expensive than, say, going to Forever 21, like, like, let's think, how much is a purse at Forever 21? I don't know, 10, 20 bucks. How much is a purse at Chanel? $7,000, right? So you would assume that, well, one's fast fashion, one's not. But I will tell you that all of these luxury brands have been behaving an awful lot like fast fashion over the past few years by, you know, sending tons and tons of free bags and other swag to influencers so that influencers will post on social media and make you feel as if you need the new it bag from them. So I think there was once this idea that you would buy a luxury bag and it would last you for decades, right? And now it's like, no, you need a new one every year. Maybe you need a new one every season. That's not cool. That's overconsumption. Anyway, you're probably wondering why I'm talking about this because I'm supposed to be sharing some work stories. But this first story is from an employee of Chanel. And I have to tell you, on the Fashion Revolution 2020 Transparency Report, Chanel scored a mere 11%. And most luxury brands only did slightly better or about the same, which put them in the same scoring group as Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Kmart, Aritzia, and American Eagle. So a lot of fast fashion peers there. To be clear, this is not a good score. It basically means that Chanel isn't sharing any information about anything it does who makes their stuff, including the raw materials, how they're being paid, the working conditions, etc. They're also not speaking any to anything around sustainability, water use, carbon footprint. All right, well, let's read the letter. And I, this has a very poetic quality to it. So I did maybe get a little too uh, beat poet when I was reading it. So excuse me for that. <laughs> Hello, friend. I would prefer that you didn't use my real name, since I am still within the evil, soul-sucking grasp of Chanel. I work for their customer service department. We are treated so unfairly. We are underpaid and given very unrealistic metrics to meet. Every week, I am told how terrible of a worker I am via their scoring. They cut my hours without notice and have the most insane policies that are are incredibly exclusive to people interested in purchasing their items. Not that I can even fathom why anyone would want to do it. Their disgusting products are made from beautiful animals and are majorly overpriced. It's gross and outrageous to think that anyone would want to or could afford to spend $7,000 or more on handbags. It's the epitome of capitalist leeches. I believe Chanel's grasp is of a great evil, an evil that began with their own history with the Nazis. I'm just going to jump in here. This is me, Amanda, speaking, saying that that is in fact true. I will link to some articles in the show notes about that because it's pretty wild and not something I want to unpack here, but that you should know about. Anyway, back to the letter. I think it's an evil magic even down to the CC logo. When I speak with other people every day who are caught up in this evil, I feel like I'm speaking to a bunch of ghosts or a bunch of heartless zombies blinded by this evil facade of Chanel. They're headless and cold, mean, cruel beings. They're lost and have enough money to incite great change. However, they'd rather spend their capitalist elite loot on the latest Chanel boots. Love, a severely stuck part-time Chanel customer care worker and full-time small business owner, 
hoping to tell them to fuck off sooner than later. So two things here. One, I will include the information about Coco Chanel's ugly history with the Nazis, including literally being a Nazi agent in the show notes. There's so much to talk about there. Maybe someday I'll do a mini-sode or something about it. I don't know. But you should read it. And number two, I'm just going to say this. You can tell a lot about a company, its ethics, and its worthiness of your business, meaning your money, by hearing how it treats its workers. If the customer service workers, like the person who submitted this letter, are being treated like crap, so are the factory workers. So are the corporate workers. So are the retail workers. And that's that's just not someone I want to give my money to. I don't know about you, but I don't think they deserve it. Moving on, we have a phone message from another anonymous caller about, quote, inappropriate outfits at work. Hello, longtime listener here, this time an anonymous caller, though, uh, just calling in with some thoughts on Labor Month topics. Um, one thing that I've realized uh, while working from home during the pandemic is how much of a good shift the work from home environment has been for me personally. Um, I work in a very uncreative industry, a corporate office type environment, and many, many days uh, getting ready for the office, I would get very anxious about uh, how to dress. I've had coworkers who were sent home for quote unquote inappropriate clothing when really there was nothing inappropriate about it. Um, you know, nothing over the top, nothing that uh, any customer would come in and say, oh, that, that doesn't fit here. Um, to yeah, not have to worry about that anymore. Working from home has been a really great shift for me. I feel a lot of my coworkers are really getting anxious to go back into the office. And personally, I hope not to do that um, because it does just take sort of this weight off my shoulder of wondering um you know, how a certain outfit's going to be perceived, especially as a creative person. Sometimes I like to have that overflow into my outfit choice for the day. Um, but then I'd always sort of be battling with it internally. Is this something I should or shouldn't do? Is it pushing the line too much? Again, you know, people have been sent home for outfits you should not be sent home for. Um, so yeah, that was just my take on how a positive side of this switch to working from home has been for me. Thanks. So I hate the idea that adults can be sent home from work for being so-called inappropriately dressed as if they are in high school. I mean, I hate high school dress codes too because they're just a way of policing young girls' bodies. But I think if your job isn't dealing with customers and there aren't uniforms or safety issues, why are you being sent home? Something smells wrong with this. And I feel like there's other unfair, unethical stuff happening in this caller's workplace. And if someone is going to be so strict about dress code, 
then it either needs to be spelled out in excruciating detail in the employee handbook, which is, for example, how airlines do it for flight attendants, and or there need to be company-provided uniforms, period. I just can't help but think this policing of employee dress is based on racism, classism, and sexism because inappropriate is not a measurable term, right? So that means it's subjective. That means inappropriate varies in the eye of the beholder. And if you're already biased against an employee because of their race, their body size, their gender, anything, you're going to be more likely to think their clothes are inappropriate. And I just I just don't think that that's okay. It sounds like a really stressful environment to work in. It's just a way to hold power over someone else and then make them feel bad about themselves. It's a way to act out your biases in real time. It's just terrible. Have any of you ever been sent home for work for being inappropriately dressed? I mean, if you were, what were you wearing? How did you feel? Call me and tell me about it. The last story is a long one, and I'm going to read it, and it's about a designer's journey from fashion school to the industry. I've been working in the fashion industry since 2014. I currently work in the design department at a large corporate brand that does a lot of licensees and lines for Walmart, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, etc. I feel gross clocking in, and I have a pretty horrible experience here. But let me start from the beginning. I'm of the belief that as a designer, the exploitation really starts out in design school. I went to a cheap option, FIT, but of course, I'm still in a ton of student debt. We all know the student loan system is predatory for pretty much everyone. That's nothing new. But design school nearly broke me in other ways as well. FIT and fashion schools in general are known for being rigorous, but they definitely crossed a line. Not only is the coursework extremely demanding, I spent more hours in the classrooms taking all of my various classes than my sister did in pre-law, but the amount of work we were expected to do outside of class is also ridiculous. All-nighters are pretty common. You'll find design students taking naps in hallways or under desks, Drug use is common, mainly so people can stay awake and complete all of their work or just deal with the stress. On top of that, the amount of verbal and emotional abuse I've seen at the hands of professors is astounding. That's not to say that I didn't have great encouraging professors or that I didn't learn a lot from those bad ones, but I have had a professor tell us not to leave the building when the fire alarm sounded. (laughs) That same professor told us to quit your jobs, break up with your boyfriends. My class is your biggest priority now. Jeez, so embarrassing. (laughs) I had another professor tell us he looks at us and weeps for the future of the fashion industry because we were pathetic. And then he said, don't bother reporting me. I'm the old department chair. I'd have to shoot one of you to get fired. The school policies regarding lateness and absences are ridiculous as well. I have seen professors demand to see a death certificate of a classmate's family member after they missed two classes to attend a grandparent's funeral. 
There's so much subjectivity too. I've had professors mark my grade down because they just don't like that color aesthetic technique. And the sentiment that you should treat your professor as your boss is extremely common. There were also professors who loved to require us to buy certain expensive materials like $40 a yard fabric. And when someone asked about a more affordable option when applicable, it was common to hear responses like, do what you want, but your grade might suffer. There was also racism too. I'm white, so I only saw the tippy top of the iceberg, but I have seen professors deliberately mispronounce or refuse to learn how to properly pronounce Asian and other foreign students' names. Fashion school was rough. I had several emotional and mental breakdowns during my time there. Seeing other students cry in stairwells and hallways was common, but it ramped up when I entered the job industry. At my first internship, I actually had to pay to work there. It was for school credit. I had to pay my school to take an additional course. It was an extremely cold winter. I would spend entire workdays running errands in the garment district on my feet eating my lunch on the subway because I was too poor to eat in a restaurant and too cold to eat on a park bench. I thought this internship, because it was with a ready-to-wear brand, would open doors for me. It did not. One of my other internships was also unpaid and also for credit, but took place during a study abroad period for me, so it was in Europe. This was slightly better. Two-hour lunch breaks, hands-on learning, more flexible hours, etc., but... At the end of the day, I still worked 40 hours a week for two months for zero pay. I didn't even get a free sample or a lunch out of this job. And I was more than just an errand girl. I designed prints, designed garments, did pattern making, sewed prototypes, and presented prints to clients, etc. All for no pay. Then I started my first real job for minimum wage at a startup brand. I was working more than 40 hours a week for what came out to about $9 per hour and no benefits. The workplace was entirely toxic. The owner, founder, and CEO had no boundaries, and both the owner as well as the designer I worked under would constantly share way too personal stories about their sex lives and personal relationships. The owner would constantly gaslight us and say, I never said that, to the point where I had to ask her to put all of the design changes in writing. When the designer above me quit, instead of hiring someone with more experience to take her place, they promoted me, someone who hadn't been out of school a year to senior designer position. I then had to deal with the owner calling me and sending me emails in the middle of the night. She left me voicemails and emails that were so garbled that it became clear she had some kind of substance abuse problem. It was common for her to push alcohol on us if she ever took us out to lunch. And while she never did it to me, she was known to grab employees by the shoulders and yell and call them stupid or ungrateful. She also wanted to be our fit model and have everything fit her like it was custom made. Then anytime a customer had a fit complaint, we would make those fit changes to the following season. This led to me changing a pant length five times. She also stated that she didn't make clothes for fat and poor people. Not a cute look. Obviously, I left this place. I started a job at another small place that made brightly colored dresses for hashtag girl bosses. They touted equality, sustainability, and feminism. Sounded great on the surface, but I learned pretty quickly that it was entirely bullshit. The sustainable aspect of the brand was that the poly and nylon dresses could be machine washed. 
yeah, this sounds about right. That was it. They also love to not pay vendors, factories, and any contract employees, models, photographers, etc. They even asked me to put expenses on my personal card, claiming they'd reimburse me. We all knew that would never happen. And they used models' images before they had even paid those models for them. They once let our health insurance lapse because they never paid it, so we were uninsured until COBRA benefits kicked in. They claimed they would reimburse us for medical expenses. Again, we all knew that was a lie. And when I brought it up, they proceeded to ask questions like, well, how serious is it really? Can it wait? And well, what kind of medication do you need? Then COVID hit. The designer above me had recently quit, and I was left to handle everything in the midst of a global crisis, while getting paid much less than what the standard pay for a senior designer is. We were also moving factories at this time, as our current one had refused to produce any more goods for us until they got paid. So our CEO decided to cut and run, other employees told me this was a common practice, and make everything with a new factory who didn't know how bad they were about paying. They had pared down the staff to basically only young junior members that they could underpay. We were all doing multiple jobs and struggling on top of daily, sometimes two-hour-long Zoom meetings and off-hours phone calls. Then they announced one day that we were all getting furloughed, but would appreciate it if we could help out. I quickly learned that helping out meant being available at all hours of the day. They wanted us to work for free. I'm just going to say that again. They wanted us to work for free. It was especially insulting because at the same time, they loved to brag about how their staff was 99% female, queer-owned, and operated by primarily queer folks, women, and POC, and then would exploit those same employees they used to seem woke. I completely quit not long after, but they reached out to me in around December wanting to hire me back at a lower rate than what they were paying me. I asked for my old salary or close to it, and they ghosted me. This brings me to my current job. I'm now working at a mass market company that does several lines for discount stores. I honestly feel sick to my stomach working here, as I know there is no way to produce items this cheap and this quickly in such large volumes in a remotely ethical way, despite all the greenwashing and ethical window dressing they try to put on it. Just the office waste is breathtaking. I can't even imagine what is happening at the manufacturing level. I've also had some issues with them regarding my treatment as well. This job, I believe, was deliberately misrepresented to me when I first applied. I was told initially I was to be hired as a freelance designer and the rate would be 40. I had assumed this meant $40 an hour, as would I, a good rate for a freelancer at this level who was not receiving benefits. At my first day, I learned this was actually an assistant level position, even though I would be doing way more than any actual entry level assistant would ever be allowed to do. Upon submitting my first invoice, I learned that I was actually receiving a flat rate of $40,000 a year split up into bi-monthly payments, not an hourly rate, which is very unusual for freelance work. I was constantly paid late. I never got any overtime for the many additional hours I had to work. And unlike what I was told when I applied to this job, 
I was and am commuting into the office every single day. In fact, my team is one of the only employees who are expected to be in the office constantly. I've also worked many late nights cleaning up messes created by those who work above me. They've technically broken several labor laws by not paying me overtime and withholding benefits for as long as they did. Now, seven months later, I'm a full-time employee here. Upon becoming full-time, I received an employee handbook that was chock full of union-busting company policies and some policies that are just plain weird and gross. They even, quote, strongly encourage employees not to spend their hard-earned dollars on union dues. I am searching for a new job, but it's becoming harder and harder to work as a designer and feel good about what you do and feel like you're being compensated and treated fairly. There's also other odd practices, like docking salaried employees' pay if they do something like work through lunch and leave early, even if they've completed their hours for the day. Certain employees, i.e. the underpaid ones, are not allowed to use the single-use executive bathrooms, even though it is impossible to social distance in the group bathrooms, not to mention coworkers were removing masks in bathrooms to do things like wash their face or brush their teeth. I work late almost every day, and I'm overall burned out. This story has me all kinds of angry because, honestly, it just sounds too familiar to me. Even their weird and disgusting ask of working for free during the pandemic after furloughing them. Are you kidding me? That is so unethical. And I'm pretty sure it's illegal. And it could result in any employee who's getting unemployment losing their unemployment and possibly getting in trouble for fraud. This is a major ask and it's incredibly fucked up. I would love to hear all of your thoughts on fashion school. If you had a similarly demoralizing experience, it's weird, you know, I didn't go to fashion school, but I'd never thought of how fashion school might be preparing you for the misery, the long hours, and the abuse of the fashion industry. But now I see I see a very strong link between the two. So I just want to hear if that's a common experience for the rest of you. Now I'm going to give you a very important piece of advice. And imagine me saying this in all caps, read Glassdoor reviews, followed by write Glassdoor reviews. If you don't know what Glassdoor is, it's a website where workers review their jobs. And it is so illuminating. I, because I am a crazy internet stalker and I love reading reviews, I will even consult it before I make a purchase from a brand. And obviously, I also consult it before I apply for a job. So I thought I would tell you a story about how Glassdoor has been involved in my life. So I have told you on the podcast before about a job that I had that was definitely my worst job. It was a very abusive, stressful environment. There was no work-life balance. We did not have health insurance. It was impossible to take time off. The CEO would harass me 24 seven. Lots of favoritism. Um, I think I mentioned that the CEO had a party at her house and didn't invite my team. Anyway, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So when I applied for that job, you know, I did what anyone would do. I go to Glassdoor. There are no reviews for it. What I came to learn after I worked there for a while is that the reason that there were no reviews is because the team was pretty small. I want to say about 10 people working in the office, 
maybe 10 people who work in the store. And there was a lot of fear that if you wrote a review, everyone would know it was you. And the CEO was incredibly vindictive and would would create problems for any former or current employee who wrote a review. I mean, that was, everyone lived in fear of her. And whether it was true or not, she definitely encouraged, if you will, the belief that she had a great hold on the entire city and you would never work again. So nobody was writing Glassdoor reviews, but this job was terrible. And everybody who was there was suffering really badly, but they were too fearful. So Around the time I left, not even when I left, this was before, months before, I started talking to people about how we needed to write Glassdoor reviews because we didn't want more people to come into this environment. Like it sucked that we had had to, we were surviving it. We would be coping with some of the stuff that we'd experienced there for quite a while, but we didn't want other people to have to go through that. But there was so much fear about writing reviews. And so I had to really organize sort of like a review storm where a bunch of us wrote reviews all at once. It was hard. People were fearful. We had to make sure they all posted at the same time. And what happened was then slowly every worker that would leave would would write a review. And this is after I was even gone to a point where I want to say this company has about like 25, 26, maybe more reviews. And... That was amazing because us being brave and banding together and encouraging others to do it encouraged others to do it and hopefully also kept them away from the job. Ostensibly, the goal of Glassdoor is not only to keep people out of bad situations, but to force companies to change the way they treat their workers. And I don't I don't think that that has happened yet for this company, but instead what they have done, which is a classic, and I've had a few conversations on Instagram this week where people have called this out at places they've worked, uh, a bunch of reviews that are honest and bad appear on Glassdoor, and management gets gets wind of that, and so they kind of pressure people into writing really ridiculously fake positive reviews. And they're pretty easy to spot because they'll all come together. They'll be like a week or two of like, if you look at the dates of glowing reviews and they'll have extreme language, like this is the best job ever, or I couldn't find anything wrong with this job. It's just so great. And realistically, there's no job that's perfect. So when you see that kind of language, you have to wonder, especially when you read the other reviews, right? I don't just read one review and then make a decision based on that. I try to look over a period of different, you know, over a couple of years if they're there and see what people are saying. And they're always, even if these people never work together based on the the chronology, they always have the same things to say. So I really recommend doing that where you work. Um, This letter made me think a lot about both, well, all the brands where this person has worked and how it would be beneficial for other people to know these places weren't that great. A few years ago, when I was still at the really terrible job and desperate to get out of there, my friend sent me a listing from somewhere for a job opening at Bandeau. And I was really excited. So Bandeau makes like gifts and they sell clothes and they're based in LA. And so I was ecstatic because their style is really cute and they're based in LA so I can move back to LA. And I, I mean, I was like, this would be a dream job for me. I'd been wanting to get out of clothing and learn other categories. And I was about to apply. And then I was like, you know what? 
you've learned a lesson from this job that startups especially can be really toxic and problematic. So let's let's go look at the glass door. And the reviews were terrible. There was you know, no work-life balance, a lot of bullying, racism, just bullshit that I didn't want to deal with again. It reminded me too much of the job I worked in already. And so I didn't apply. And so I'm really grateful for all of the people who worked at Bandeau at that time who probably were very fearful of writing a review because it's a small team as well. I'm really grateful for their their bravery and putting that out there because it worked. It kept me away from there. And I will tell you anytime there's a blow up about one of these shitty brands, these brands that seem like they're doing so good on the surface, and then it turns out they're toxic under the covers. When that kind of news bubbles up, the Glassdoor reviews are always cited as proof. And and I love that. You know, I've seen it with Away. I've seen it with Everlane, you know, with Bandeau. Even with that terrible place I worked, they had a minor dust up last year about not paying people. And that came up. People were like, have you seen their Glassdoor reviews? I'll never give this company money again. So I think it's really important to share your experiences. I'm just going to say it again. Read the Glassdoor reviews. Write the Glassdoor reviews. Now, if a job doesn't have Glassdoor reviews yet for whatever reason, I would suggest asking around it to anyone you might know, a friend or an acquaintance, a friend of a friend who's worked there. This was really beneficial to me in the pre-Glassdoor era when I was pretty early in my career. Uh, I was over my job and it was like, you know, gross, mean girl situation. And I just wanted to move away and do something different with a different company. And a recruiter from Forever 21 reached out to me. Now I know you're like, oh God, Forever 21. But remember, I was already working at fast fashion and I worked in an office full of really mean people. There were also some great people, but very dysfunctional, lots of bullying, cruelty, people crying all the time, classic mean girl stuff. And I was like, well, how could Forever 21 be worse than this? So I was mentioning it to another friend at work who was like, you know, so-and-so, remember her? Well, she works there now. You should just email her. And I emailed her, and she was like, listen, I can't. They read our emails here, so I'm going to call you after work. What's your phone number? And she called me, um, and she told me, she was like, don't take this job. You know, I'm an associate buyer here, and I still have to work a second job to pay my rent. And we work from 6 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. She went on and on. She's like, we only get 30 minutes to eat lunch. They ring a bell. Then you have to put your food away. I mean, just it was horrible. And she was like, do not take this job. And once again, I would have thought about it. I was really seriously considering it. So that's another way to kind of do your homework before you take a job. Now, sometimes you're going to take a job. Do all the due diligence, take the job and then get it. And it's going to suck. And that's okay too. That's not your fault. It's the fault of the employer. But these are ways that could maybe reduce the chances of that happening. Once again, thank you for your work stories and keep them coming. I feel like we're learning so much. It's reminding me of things I want to talk about. And I just think we are accomplishing some major stuff here. All right, well, I've been talking for a long time, and I'm super excited for you to meet Sarah, so let's just jump into our conversation. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Sarah. Well, this is your first appearance on Close Horse. So why don't you introduce everyone to you? Sure. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Uh, I'm so excited. Um, so my name is Sarah Finley Purdy, and um, I guess I would call myself an independent scholar at this point. Um, I have a background in museum collections and uh, institutional archives, and I became interested in um, researching modern day slavery, specifically within the garment industry. Um, about a year ago, um, I have my master's in fashion textile history from um, the Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, and so I've always been interested in the history of fashion and kind of looking back. Um, but I haven't spent as much time looking at what's going on right now. And um, last year in January, right before um, COVID hit and all of that, um, I took a free class um, through the London College of Fashion on fashion sustainability. And because I wanted to learn about that topic, I didn't know much about it. And it was through that class that I started to learn about um, the human rights aspects of sustainability. And that really kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. And I ended up getting the opportunity to uh, write an encyclopedia article for um, the Berg Encyclopedia of World Dress and Fashion um, on modern day slavery in the garment industry. Um, so that's sort of how I got to this topic. And, um, I'm, you know, eager to talk to you today, um, specifically about the issues going on in India with the Sumangali labor camps, um, and the exploitation of young girls and women. I mean, I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I think you reached out to me with an article or something at one point, And I was like, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, could you just come and be on the podcast? Yeah. Because this is something that we don't talk enough about mm -hmm. when we're in, in our sort of like sustainable ethical bubble. Like, yeah. I've been talking a lot on the show about the Uyghurs. I think that that is not getting enough media attention, mm -hmm. especially when we yeah. consider what's really happening there. But I think it's important to remind everyone who's listening to this that that's not the only case of forced labor, of modern-day slavery in the apparel industry. And yes. it's not a new thing either. Right. Yeah. It's so much more widespread than you would think. Uh, you, you like to think that we are not in an era of this kind of stuff anymore and we, you couldn't be more wrong, you know? So you used the term modern day slavery. Mm -hmm. What is that? What does that mean? Yeah. So modern day slavery, um, some folks like to define it as contemporary slavery. Um, you, sometimes you'll see different terms thrown around. Um, typically that can include things such as forced labor, but essentially it is an umbrella term um, for several different uh, practices. Um, a definition that I really like um, from the UN, this was for um, a statement they put out for Slavery Abolition Day back in 2015. Um, they said, although modern day slavery is not defined in law, it's used as an umbrella term covering practices such as forced labor, debt bondage, forced marriage, and human trafficking. Um, whenever I was trying to develop my own definition um, for the article I was writing for Berg. Um, I did include supply chain exploitation in that and um, something I'll be talking about a little bit later. 
uh, is the Tamil Nadu Alliance and um, all the good work they're starting to do to kind of bring light to the Sumangali camps. And they also define um, this form of slavery this way. And they find that abusive practices occurring within supply chains that can kind of be indicators that forced labor is there. Mm -hmm. Um, That includes like excessive or involuntary overtime, extremely low wages, um, any sort of harassment, whether it's sexual or verbal or physical. Um, Often the working conditions will bring about chronic illnesses for the workers. That's another indication that there is probably some form of abuse going on. Um, There's usually um, unfair or shady recruitment practices. uh, And we'll get into that a little bit with this discussion. Um, There's also often a lack of freedom of movement or you cannot leave the job under penalty of some sort of retribution or even death in some cases. Um, so those are indications um, that it does exist, um, whether it's in the garment industry or other industries as well. And my guess here, just as someone who has worked in the industry and you know spends a lot of time thinking mm-hmm. and writing and talking about it, is that this modern day slavery within the apparel industry is really, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, <laughs> driven by low, low costs because you don't yes. get much cheaper. Absolutely. Than yeah. Barely yeah. or not at all paying someone. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, oh, that reminds me. Yeah. I can't remember where I read it. I just read it yesterday, though, but it was like the breakdown of like a t shirt cost. And I'm sure you've probably read like similar stats, but where like the garment worker themselves is only getting like 0.3% or something of what the t shirt costs. <sighs> yeah. You know, so the next time you're buying like a $10 t shirt, like think about how much the person who made it is actually getting paid. The retailer is usually the one making the majority of the money back. Um, but yeah, that just was a nice um, reminder for myself even because um, it's just so easy to, you know, go to department stores or wherever and you're like, oh, this is $10 or even less. Like I'll just pick one up or pick up five, you know, um, without sort of thinking about why is this so cheap, relatively cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you know, right now in the industry, we look at garments as like 60% of the cost is the fabric. The fabric's mm-hmm. actually the cheapest part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the second most expensive is duties and freight. So mm-hmm. like, you know, duties, obviously like the tariffs you pay to bring stuff in and out of a country. Freight, you know, it used to be via boat. It was pretty cheap, but now frequently it's via airplane. It's substantially okay. more expensive. And then you break down the rest of the expenses of the garment, like the trims and whatnot, and the sewing, the actual making of, making of everything, the sewing, Mm -hmm. the making of the fabric, all of that is at the bottom. And I think that says something because sewing is highly skilled. Uh, So actually all making fabric, printing fabric, everything is highly skilled. And I think that's really terrifying when we say, oh Mm -hmm. no, the shipping, we spent more money on the Mm -hmm. shipping than the people. Yeah. Exactly. So, of course, I have my own guesses here, but who does this modern-day slavery primarily impact? So, it primarily impacts women, Um, absolutely. Um, They're definitely near the top of the stats when you start breaking these things down. Um, I would say women and children are both disproportionately affected. It obviously affects men too. Um, but they are often targeted, um, depending on the part of the world they're in, depending on, um, the cultural practices, the way women and children are viewed. And, um, they often don't have the knowledge, um, about 
you know, essentially workers' rights. They mm-hmm. usually aren't taught those things the same way that a man might be taught those things. That's definitely the case uh, in India from what I found uh, through my research, unfortunately. Um, and so that's, you know, that's dangerous. And um, knowledge and education are, you know, one of the main things that can really help, um, you know, protect um, the vulnerable in these sorts of situations. Of course, you know, poverty plays a huge role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are forced into situations that I think under other circumstances, they would never, you know, partake in. Um, but yeah, so d- definitely disproportionate amount of women and girls. Um, and 80% of garment textile workers are are women. Yeah. And does this, I mean, are children ever a part of this? Uh, you know, how young does this go? Because we say women and girls. So when you mm-hmm. say girls, I assume you mean teenagers. But yes. are there people yeah. younger than yeah. that being pulled into this? Yeah. So I will say, I don't know specifically the stats on children under the age of like 11 or 12, Mm -hmm. um, but I would not be surprised. I think, sorry, I'm going to get off the rails a little bit, but I thought I did read something. It was about cotton that I was like, wait a minute. I mean, I, I, anything bad you've read about cotton, I believe, because the more I read about cotton, the more upset I get. It seems that forced labor and labor violations are such mm-hmm. a key component of the cotton industry. Yes, absolutely. It's wild. I would say it relies on, on that. So at least in the cotton farms that are in Southern India, um, they rely heavily on young girls and children. And it said at least these stats, I think these were like as of like 2012, um, that more than half of the workers were under 14 years old. Oh. It didn't specify you know, exactly their age. But yeah, we're talking about, yeah, a lot of this workforce, um, especially when we start talking about the Sumangali camps, they definitely are minors, um, at least by our like Western definition of that. It's, it's the thing about cotton is they think that, you know, the average person, well, the average person who has some knowledge about (laughs) fabric and the industry, you know, Mm -hmm. if they go into a store and they can choose between like a polyester shirt and a cotton shirt, they're always going to go with cotton because that feels like the better option. Sure. And it, and it, is, but nothing that we can buy is the perfect option because, right. you know, for example, yeah. cotton is so the whole, uh, there's like no transparency into the supply chain for cotton. Yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's literally grown on a farm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's a lot more challenging. And this is where a lot of forced labor and other really sketchy practices yeah. come into play. Yeah. yeah. So where does forced labor, modern day slavery happen? Yeah. So that is such a great question. Cause I think sometimes when people ask that, they just assume that it's, you know, somewhere else, you know, um, yeah, in quotes, somewhere yeah, else. Quotes, it's yeah. somewhere else. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, but it is also, it is here, um, you know, on our soil, on our turf as well. Um, and, uh, a resource that I think is really helpful in breaking down the locations of these issues Um, is the Global Slavery Index. Um, They were really crucial for my research into this. Um, The last study they um, published was in 2018. Up until that point, it seems like they tended to publish like every other year, every two years. Um, I'm sure they didn't publish last year for, you know, obvious COVID Mm -hmm. reasons. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so they... Um, a lot of countries, I guess, that are profiting, first I'll say, yeah, the countries that are profiting off of modern day slavery in any of its form, any of its industries, um, are essentially what they qualify as G20 countries. So that includes Argentina, Australia, Brazil, 
Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy and Japan, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Turkey, the UK, and the US. Now, within some of those, you also have very large, so like they're profiting off of it and utilizing the resources, you know, and purchasing things. But some of these countries are also very active players uh, in those, you know, in these problems. Um, So garments are the number one import made by um, forced labor into the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, Italy, France, and Brazil, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, garments and clothing and accessories, they're mostly manufactured, um, in South America and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the carpet industry originates products, you know, in India, pa- Pakistan. Um, and it looks like from what I found, these were kind of a little bit, of, these were 2018 stats. Um, the cotton was coming from Kazakhstan, Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, um, so that's kind of, does that answer the question or is that just like a big, long, boring list? No, I, could, like, I, think, that's, I think that's good. And when yeah. you were talking about mm-hmm. uh, the cotton from like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, yeah. Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. I know there that like government forced labor to pick cotton is mm-hmm. like the law. So they can mm-hmm. basically say, hey, you citizen today, you have to go pick cotton for free. Yeah. Like you're required mm-hmm. for the next few weeks and they'll come and sit, take all of the elderly people and the children and care for Ugh. them so everyone can go yeah. pick cotton. But it's like, it's not like a fun, right. we're all yeah. <laughs> cotton together <laughs> situation. Yeah. Um, and I think, <laughs> I mean, cotton is just so, uh, it's so frustrating. Oh, I want to mention too, um, in terms of, yeah, issues of, of modern day slavery and forced labor, um, within America. And I'm sure you're, I think I've heard you talk about like the LA garment industry, uh, on the podcast before. Um, but whenever I was doing my research, just looking more into like the 13th amendment and the profiting off of prison labor and how that's just like still been something that has happened in this country up until very recently. Um, so you, I guess there's two problems there. Like there's the prison labor and then there's also the sweatshops in Mm -hmm. LA, um, that often will take advantage of of undocumented peoples, um, you know, women and, and other things like that. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I think it was up until like the early 2000s, like Victoria's Secret was finally called out for using prison labor. It was like out of a facility, I think, in North Carolina. Um, and that blew my mind because I, I had no idea. I knew, you know, they were fast fashion and all that. But it's it's very fascinating and how a lot of times things get slapped on with the, you know, made in America. Um, and, and it yep. could very well have been made by prisoners in America um, for little to no pay. Um, and there was even something I'd read um, that around the turn of the century, um, when labor unions were forming and there were strikes, oftentimes prison labor was a way to sort of like almost, you know, the prisoners were almost like the scabs in a way. Um, Uh, But then companies could essentially just purely profit because they didn't have to pay workers wages. So that was just really appalling to me. Um, But that is, you know, those are the kinds of things that, you know, the 13th Amendment has protected. You know, and and it continues to, um, yeah, create issues. Yeah, I don't think we talk about prison labor enough. Yeah. Um, You know, prisoners 
they kind of have to work. It's not like you yeah. get a lot of options. Uh, so mm-hmm. I would say it's pretty forced. And there's you don't get paid minimum wage to no, work no. as a prisoner. Uh, it's I would say it's comparable to what you know people who are being paid poverty wages overseas are being paid. So yeah. ultimately, mm-hmm. I would say that prison labor is the cheapest labor you can get in the United States legally. Yes. You know, Uh, and I think saying that phrase out loud, there's like 1000 things wrong with that, you know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. and And I think it's interesting because this is something you can talk about with people who, you know, I think are pretty sympathetic to the plight of workers overseas as much as they can be. Mm -hmm. And they'll still be like, yeah, but those people are in prison. So Mm -hmm. like, like that's a whole other line of thinking where prisoners don't deserve human rights, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, you know, I think that like indicates some, like, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is a different podcast, a different podcast (laughs) topic, but just our attitudes about the criminal justice system and and people who commit crimes, because it kind of implies that the criminal justice system is always right and never flawed. And anyone Mm -hmm. who's in Mm -hmm. prison is somehow an irredeemable character who should have to sew panties for Victoria's yeah. Secret for five cents. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it's just, yeah, it's such a sad stripping away of humanity. Um, it's like a total like unforgive unforgiveness. You know, it's like you you get to you don't get to really be a human anymore. Like that's it, you're done. Um, yeah, and that's incredibly problematic. Um, and it's you know, it's scary and it's problematic that it's still in a lot of ways protected and you know, taken advantage of. Yeah. I mean, it just goes back to something I've said before in the show, which is we can't let the law be the measuring tool that we use to determine whether something is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Because plenty yeah. of wrong things are unethical. Right. And yeah. this could be one of them where, yeah. yeah, the law says you can do this. Like, yeah. it's totally mm-hmm. fine. Have have at it. And yeah. I would say, like, listen, I think it's amazing to teach people job skills who are incarcerated because it yeah. may give them some options out of prison because, you know, finding a job if you're a convicted felon is Mm -hmm. damn near impossible. But that's not what's happening here. You know, it's exploitation of Mm -hmm. people. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's not a cultivation. um, Yeah. Yeah. Of people's skills. Yeah. Or like you said, helping them to prepare them for re-entry, which I mean, a lot of them really need. Yeah. And well, if you're sewing panties all day, you think, okay, great. I could maybe get out of prison and, uh, you know, work in the garment industry, but actually like mm-hmm. probably not because there's barely an industry here. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like now what do I do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So exactly. moving on to another group of people who are just ripe for exploitation. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about young women and the marriage schemes in India. Because when I first yes. learned about yeah. this, mm-hmm. I it sounded like something that would come from like medieval times, like this, yeah. not the a meet place where you go for dinner and watch a job, right. like actual <laughs> era in yeah. history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get into this. All right, so um, the marriage schemes in India are often referred to as um, the Sumangali scheme. Um, the the mills and the factories themselves would never call it that. Um, Sumangali essentially means married woman uh, in the native dialect. Um, so it's sort of just like a nickname. It's something that um, other people have defined it that way um, just to describe it. And it does. Um, some nonprofits will also kind of clump these in with what are called coolie camps. Um, and I just sort of had to educate myself about this this week. 
as I wasn't really familiar with the terminology, um, but essentially like a coolie camp is used to describe like a, a working situation where the workers live, you know, on site at the factory. Um, and essentially it is indentured servitude um, or forced labor. Um, I had read a really interesting NPR article about forced labor um, in East and South Asia and they were saying how, um, you know, the word entered the English language in the 1830s, and it was as the indentured labor system gained currency as a replacement for the use of slavery in the British Empire. So okay. in my mind, too, like that really drives home that like, this is also another form of modern day slavery. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just something that kind of takes the place. Because oftentimes when I do think about what's going on now, I'm like, how did we get here? You know, um, and we think, you know, in our own little bubble sometimes in America, we're like, well, we, you know, we outlawed slavery. We fixed all that, you know, all this <laughs> stuff that's going on right now. And it's like, well, obviously we didn't. It's like, how did we get here? There has to be a reason that this is still happening. And so I think a lot of it is just sort of the same thing, you know, tweaked name something different um but essentially you know just still like a mass exploitation of of vulnerable people um for you know for profit mm -hmm. yeah i'll read you sort of what i wrote what just to kind of summarize the whole scheme itself and then i can kind of uh break it down a little bit more okay. um so india uh in india um the tamil nadu spinning industry uh prospers off of the forced labor of young girls and tamil nadu is i believe like one of the more southern provinces in india just kind of geographically to locate it um sumangali or camp labor or you know the marriage scheme uh it is technically illegal under india's court legislation um, but it definitely continues regardless. Um, some I've seen some organizations classify it not just as forced labor, but also as a trafficking scheme. Um, there are instances where they will have recruiters go out into usually um, rural villages, impoverished villages. Um, they'll target uh, women and families in lower caste systems um, and essentially promise them that, hey, like you want your daughter to get married, but you know, you don't make enough money. Um, if you let her come work for us for like two or three years, we can give you the dowry that you need to get her married off to a, you know, a proper, make them proper match. Um, and a lot of families will sort of jump at this chance because otherwise they wouldn't know what to do. Um, mm -hmm. There's also a lot of like hesitancy within their culture for young girls to like be left alone or to do anything on their own. So they sort of see this as a safe option for their child as well as a way of making, you know, a future for them. Um, and so the recruiters from these mills really sort of bank on that um, in order to kind of get, get cheap labor. Aren't the recruiters, if I'm remembering correctly, mm -hmm. uh, that are sent out to recruit these women, often women themselves, and yeah. they, whether it's true or not, they portray themselves as these very happily married women that these girls could become as well. Mm -hmm. It's so, so yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe that that's true. Um, what's interesting, I was reading like a study where um, 
this nonprofit had wanted to interview girls who were going currently going through um, one of these, you know, labor situations. And um, they had a hard time interviewing them because these girls and women are constantly accompanied by um, essentially, I don't want to really call it a guardian, but, you know, like a chaperone, like even if they want to go into the village to go shopping or anything, they really can't have any contact um, with anyone outside of the labor camps. And so what ended up happening is they had to, to do their study and they ended up just having to interview women who had gone through the whole process mm-hmm. and then gotten out. Um, but that just was sort of, you know, terrifying to me too. Like just how restricted their movement was. Um, sometimes they can call their parents, sometimes they can't, you know, things like that. And especially when you think about how young um, some of these girls are, um, where on paper they're supposed to say they're at least 16. Um, but just from photographs um, you look at of some of these of these girls, like they're children, like they're definitely uh, younger than that. Um, and so the whole like rationale of the age of being either 16, between 16 and 18 is that the ideal marriage would happen when they're like 20 or 21. So that's why it's like a three year mm-hmm. contract. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, you know, work in your way there. And it is like a lump sum, um, contract. Uh, what they don't always tell the parents up front is that there will usually be deductions if, you know, you make a mistake in your work. Um, sometimes, you know, food costs are deducted, housing costs are deducted. So you really are walking out of there um, with less money than is promised. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to get a picture of this here. So mm-hmm. these are young girls. They live on site where they're working. So I'm assuming in some sort of dorm situation. Yes. Um, And they are not allowed to go anywhere unescorted, right? Yes. So do they get to go to school or – I mean – I probably not right. I'm yeah, being no, so naive here. Yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no education options for these girls, um, and that's a huge problem. Um, oftentimes, um, the boys in the culture are encouraged to go to school, you know, and are sent one way or the other, um, where the girls are not. And so essentially the girls are just like waiting to get married. Like that's kind of the whole point of their existence. And I hate to say it that way, but like, that's how they're treated. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of also seen like, if you're an unmarried woman, like you also have the time that you can go be in kind of this force. I hate to say it that way, but, but it's like you have the, I saw someone kind of put it that way, that you have the time um, to be in kind of a really intense work situation to work these long, like 15 hour days or work overtime with that because you don't have a family yet to take care of. Um, whereas after the point of being married, some of these women will continue to work, um, for these mills, but just as day laborers. So the hours are not quite as long, you know, they could still kind of go home to their families at night and that sort of thing. And so is is it nice to work there? Are the conditions good? <laughs> the conditions are not good, no. Um, so yeah, like I said, very long work hours, I think especially if you're a child, essentially, um, typically between 10 and 14 hours a day, um, but there is like forced overtime, like you cannot get out of it. Um, it's often very hi- unhygienic um, in the restrooms and in terms of like their menstrual care, like that's just, yeah, I think almost non-existent um, and they have to work whether they're sick or menstruating or really anything. Um, there's no reason they shouldn't be working. Um, and then they, like I said, they live in like company owned housing or sometimes it's more like a hostel sort of situation. 
Um, so yeah, definitely not um, good working conditions. Um, injuries do happen. Um, they don't have any sort of job benefits um, because um, they're essentially classified as apprentices. Apprentices, And I thought this was kind of fascinating because if you're an apprentice worker, legally, they don't have to pay you like above a certain rate. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, so it kind of keeps the costs even yeah. lower for them. Um, and I thought it was really fascinating. Like the contracts, the two to three year contracts are come with a promise of making 25,000 to 50,000. Um, I think it's rupees, mm-hmm. Indian rupees. Um, and that's equivalent to only 500 to a thousand us dollars. So for three years <sighs> of work, the most you'll make is a thousand dollars. And that is probably not yeah. going to happen because they're right. going to nickel and dime you. And so mm-hmm. once again, this is working in the fabric mills. So they're making yeah. fabric. Mm-hmm. Yes. Probably yeah, it's cotton. Often, yeah. It's often spinning. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Um, and yeah. so are there meals provided for? Do they get clothing, medical care? I'm sure if they get any medical care, it's deducted from their paycheck. I can yeah, only see yeah. that. So meals are definitely provided. Um, I haven't really read record of medical care. So I can't say definitively yes or no. I'm assuming there has to be some kind of basic care, like because people will get injured. You know, you can't just, you know, let someone you know, bleed or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the instance is, but I would say it's probably fairly minimal. And and like I said, there is no sort of paid time off. Um, There's no like sick days or anything like that. So they're kind of working through whatever, whatever they're going through, they're working through it. Yeah. So do you have a rough estimate of how many people this is impacting, how large this situation is? Yeah. Um, So at least as of um, 2012, that was one of the last reports I read that was like really thorough. Um, Each of the mills employs usually between 100 to 6,000 workers. And so you're talking about, you know, with multiple mills, like all throughout the region, you're talking probably like a couple hundred of thousand hundreds of thousands of, um, women that this is impacting. Um, sorry, I thought I did have a number somewhere. It's okay. I mean, I, I, I know it's also like, it's like out in the open, but also secret. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really weird. It's like, if you're in the sustainability ethical manufacturing game, you know about this, but Mm -hmm. it's another thing that never seems to get any major yeah. press attention. Yeah. It is 100% happening right now. I yeah. I th- I feel like when we talk about fashion uh and you know the workers in fashion, we talk a lot about China, we talk a lot mm-hmm. about Bangladesh, maybe Indonesia. Oh, yeah. Um we n- rarely talk about India and yeah. We're buying a lot of clothes from India. I mean, I can yeah. say based on my experience, especially <laughs> mm-hmm. if you if you are the person who sort of loves like a boho kind of style, if you like beading or cotton mm-hmm. or gauzy clothing, any sort of embellishment, if you like yeah. leather belts and sandals and whatnot, yeah. <laughs> that's all coming from India. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's the other stuff that's like more modern, maybe less embellished, uh, less Mm -hmm. gauzy and like earthy feeling that comes from China and Bangladesh Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And so like, if you 
if you would describe your style as like bohemian, <laughs> you're yeah. probably wearing some clothes yeah. from India right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what's kind of fascinating if you start to think about the supply chain, like with the spinning industry, that's what most of these are. Um, I found that I think it's like, you know, 80% of this is happening within the spinning sector that, you know, there's this forced labor in this way. Um, a lot of the fabric is then going into the local Indian economy, but some of it is being exported to China and and to Bangladesh. But after that, it's much harder to track, Mm -hmm. but it's very possible that like it's, it's within the global economy, you know what I mean? Or the global supply chain. Um, but the numbers are just like, no one can really figure it out, you you know, because like the supply chains are so muddy and that's like Mm -hmm. such a huge, huge problem. Yeah. And and like you said, how, you know, like this is something that's been going on, it's going on now, but like no one knows about it. And like, yeah, what's kind of blew my mind too, is like, as I've been reading about these things, a lot of um, sources I find like I find stuff up until like 2013 and then it's been really hard to find like more recent data. And I don't know why, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's some kind of like cover up or like people are just focusing on oops, something else, but obviously like it is still happening and people do still care about it. Cause like the Tamil Nadu Alliance, um, just like issued their own declaration and framework of action to try to call like major fashion brands and retailers um, to disclose their supply chains and try to get beyond like the first tier. Um, And so there's like fashion revolution has their whole, like who made my fabric campaign that they just launched uh, this year um, to try to like support that um, framework of action and try to get more brands to disclose more information. Um, you know, because Fashion Revolution, like every year they put out their transparency index and, you know, that's great and it's super helpful, but oftentimes like companies still aren't disclosing everything, you know, they're just disclosing a couple different tiers of their supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, man, I am so wondering what, why we're not reading or mm-hmm. hearing about India anymore. And I do think yeah. that that is a very intentional. I know yeah. in the last decade, India has been sort of undergoing an, an international image overhaul, mm-hmm. uh, but textiles and clothing manufacturing, also leather. I don't even have statistics on leather, but I know that okay. I want to say that t- textiles are 12% of Indian India's total manufacturing, but that doesn't mm-hmm. include leather and accessories and all this other stuff. That also comes from India. Um, But I know that they have been really trying to be like, no, we're not, we're not like China. We're not this country Mm, that's like the factory (laughs) to the world. We're better Mm -hmm. than that. And the reality is like, I see how the shutdown in the beginning of the COVID in India really impacted the industry. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was talking to Dustin, my husband the other day, as we were listening to NPR and hearing about how devastating COVID is in India Mm -hmm. right now. And the, uh, you know, the prime minister's refusal to shut down. And I was like, I know that this is in large part due to the textile and leather and other accessory manufacturing that's going on in India, Mm -hmm. because there is definitely, I 100% guarantee this pushback from all of the global retailers and companies that rely on India to not mm-hmm. shut down. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I can say that full, 100%. I, I know that. Yeah. And I think that like now we're seeing how 
our sort of top secret reliance on India Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, hurting people right now. You know, I I see that. I see that direct line there. And I think, you know, we forget about India. We forget about how much stuff we're buying comes from there. And like, seriously, go look in the labels in your closet. You have so Mm -hmm. much stuff that's from India. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. 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 If we talk about China, we talk about China all the time. We talk Mm -hmm. about Bangladesh. We don't talk about how COVID has impacted India at all. And I went down a really dark, dark rabbit hole a Mm -hmm. couple months ago that I haven't really reported much on the podcast because I was like, this is so much information for me to process, Mm -hmm. but really about the cotton industry in Mm -hmm. India. I mean, it was like, India is one of the top producers of cotton. I want to say it's like U.S., China, then India, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's China, U.S., India, but something like that. And like farmers, there's a high rate of the farmers who grow cotton. Like they have a high suicide rate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they're, they get in over their heads with loans. They are Mm -hmm. not guaranteed a fair price for Mm -hmm. cotton. Apparently it's like kind of the most stressful job you could have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It anybody who's working within the cotton industry in India is having a bad time. It seems. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Definitely. Um, and because there is so much drive for more and more and more cotton production, but mm-hmm. at a lower and lower, lower price. And that is yeah. why farmers are getting in over their heads. They're ending their lives. People are being yeah. enslaved. Oh, it's awful. It's yeah. awful. Oh, yeah. Awful. It's why they're using children. Yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons, too, I mean, they use children is like the nimbleness of their fingers God. in terms of like the crop pollinating. Yeah. Like it's horrible. I was like reading this and I'm just like, <gasps> I was like, I can't buy any more cotton. <laughs> I just, know. I I'm know. like, what do I it's, wear now? I know. Like, I just put I on know. a trash bag. I don't know. I know. Yeah. I and I, I mean, I think you know. Once again, it like goes back to like what needs to happen is like the mm-hmm. era of fast fashion, the overconsumption, the low yeah. low prices associated with it need to end. And yeah. something that I come back to time and time again is like for us to pay a fair price for our clothes and the people who are involved in making them to make a living wage, mm-hmm. it doesn't. The argument I hear all the time is like, well, good luck affording clothes anymore. Yeah, more people won't be, they'll be naked. And I'm like, no, actually, it would add like maybe a dollar to the price of something that costs Mm -hmm. less than $50 right now. Like, it's not, that's just how impactful it could mm-hmm. like a small amount of money would be amazing. In this case. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It makes you crazy. Like, and I totally relate with like, once you kind of go down a hole and then you're like, I don't know if I can even talk about this yet. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. when I first started kind of diving into all this stuff, I was just like in a state of shock, you know, I was just like, <laughs> how is this actually happening in our world? You know? And it just shows like kind of what a bubble I've been in that it's like, I was just totally unaware. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. My knowledge of what was going on in India overall in terms of the of garment manufacturing of the textile mm-hmm. industry was so minimal. And all I really knew is like, okay, if you want good embellishment or you want natural fibers or you want mm-hmm. leather, you need yeah. to go through India. Uh, it will be more expensive. But like conversely in China, they don't make good fa- like fabric that has that same hand mm-hmm. that feels as good. Yeah. They're not good at embellishment. The leather goods are usually f- like really stiff and not nice. And like, these are the things Mm -hmm. that are sort of drilled into your head when you work in the industry. So you see that these countries are both really important players in fashion and that they bring different things to the table, but you never talk about what happens to get that stuff there. 
Right. You know, yeah. We we, we mm-hmm. in the industry treat these places as just big factories filled with like yeah. drones making whatever we want. I oh, yeah. worked with yeah. so many people over the years who think how it works is like you have an idea and you just like describe it and then someone in China like makes it and like that's yeah. not what happens either, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it really does like designers kind of have a hand in this too. Like by being so removed and then, you know, thinking like, oh, I just come up with this and then they're gonna make me a bunch of, you know, samples and like it'll be great. And without kind of any regard for like the fabric or the sourcing, you know, or anything, you know, I think that does play a part in it too, especially if you're not thinking outside of your immediate surroundings when you're drawing like design inspiration. I think that's an interesting thing to think about. And also just that, like, I will tell you having worked in this industry for a really long time, Mm -hmm. no one knows anything about the fabric. Like your production (sighs) person will probably be like, oh, well that's 10% poly, you know, mm-hmm. 90% cotton or something. Yeah. Uh, it's this weight. Your designer might know some of that, but like you, the buyer, or like if wow. you're going to market to buy stuff from brands, you don't know what any of that stuff means. You're like, oh, it, yeah. it feels nice. Oh, it right. doesn't <laughs> feel nice. And yeah. so you're not thinking like, hey, so is this fabric recyclable? Right. Um, like, mm-hmm. does it you know, is it biodegradable? Where was it made? Yeah. I was reading and I just have started to dig into this because this is a really hard one. But okay. apparently, you know, most most synthetic fabrics in the world that we, you know, buy and consume mm-hmm. are made in China. Yeah. And apparently a lot of the factories where these fabrics are made, these synthetic fabrics, they are so unregulated. Uh, mm. There's tons of forced labor. There's tons mm-hmm. of child labor, all yeah. terrible, terrible working conditions. Yeah. And it continues beca- unchecked basically because the Western and, you know, intern global large mm-hmm. retailers are so disconnected from where the fabric comes from because often they're getting the fabric through the factory that is going to make okay. the garment. They're not going directly to the mill that often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and even if they did, you know, knowing what happens in factories right now anyway, uh, right. There, there's there's no one there or no one shining a light on this and saying like, hey, uh, let's talk about fabric. I know that Fashion Revolution has started to talk about that recently, but I think that that is a massive area of opportunity. I mean, yeah. even if the only thing you knew is what we're talking about right now and that you knew that the Uyghurs were being forced to pick cotton, that would be enough mm-hmm. to say, huh, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. we don't talk about the fabric enough. And yeah. Then to know that like the synthetic fabric factories are also uh, like an Orwellian yeah. nightmare. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a, fr- I'm like, I need to like, you know, dig into this, read about this, know more about yeah. it. But it, it is like, there is this emotional burden that comes with yeah, knowing how absolutely. terrible things are. And yet yeah. someone mm-hmm. needs to do that work, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's eye opening. Like it's made me just sort of view like, like all aspects of my consumption so differently because I know that it's not just the garment industry where these things are going on. Like so many industries, you know, this, that this is impacting, you know, technology's the second, I think technology's the first largest with this problem. And then fashion is like right behind it. Um, And those are the two things that like, you know, the Western world in large consumes like on, you know, like in massive amounts. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's hard because it's like those are the things 
you know, up until recently, it's like I was consuming, you know, at too high of a rate as well, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, yeah, it's tricky, but it is about, you know, kind of, you know, do what you can with the knowledge you have, you know, and it's like, try to do better. Like once you learn, learn about these things, if it's within your means to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So back to India. Um, have you ever seen that documentary machines? No, I don't Um, know it. It's, I think it's available on Netflix. That's why I watched it a couple months ago. Um, Mm, it is a documentary film. It takes place. It's set. I guess in an, in a textile factory in India oh, and it okay. has very, very little dialogue, just music and mm. the sound, the sound of manufacturing. Um, it's, it's very haunting. Yeah. And what struck me about this actually, I mean, well, first off you watch that and you're like, wow, making fabric, printing fabric, it's a terrible job. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It's sweaty. Yeah. It's miserable. You're exhausted yeah. when you finish. Um, what struck me because I know that, of the garment industry workers in the world are women is that everybody I saw in this documentary was male. Hmm. And I thought that that was really interesting. So this took place in India. So I was wondering if you know, Hmm. when we talk about textiles in India, knowing that 80% of garment workers worldwide are women and knowing that all of these girls are caught up in these fabric marriage schemes, Mm -hmm. Is there like I, I I just can't believe this documentary only showed men because it just didn't align mm-hmm. with what I know at all. Is yeah. there some sort of like differentiation? Like, do the men make the fancier product? Uh, is it mm. women who are only involved in a certain aspect of this industry there? That's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer. I wish I did. That's that's actually <laughs> a really great question. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, that I don't know. I'm happy to look into that. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I, I was like, this this doesn't it is not in line with anything I know about what happens in India, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And from all the pictures I see, it's like, there's very few men usually present, but again, these are just spinning mills. I haven't actually dug into too much into just like their textile production. Um, but that's such a great question. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. I just was bringing that up. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about what makes these girls and these young women particularly vulnerable, because I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle here. So it's, it's young women and girls, mm-hmm. I think more girls than young women, let's be honest, who yeah, are, yeah. they live in rural areas, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. And the education's not that great or non-existent at all, yes. right? And it mm-hmm. seems that yeah. this is this is literally the only option. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Um, at least that's how, like, from my research, that's the way it sort of seems to be presented. Like, they usually have very little options, especially if they are from the lower castes or certain castes um, or even sort of certain, I guess, ethnicities um, within, within India. Um, There is discrimination in that way too. Um, And so, yeah, that all those things kind of combined can lead to, to this um, being kind of their only option. Um, Something I thought was interesting um, 
that was emphasized in my reading was the safety aspect and how important that was to families because they really viewed young girls as being unsafe, even if they were just like alone on their family's farm. Like they didn't think that this was, so, yeah, like, it's very uh, like, you're just like, what year is it? Like, um, reading about know, this stuff, it's, it's wild. And so they really would like rather have their daughter know that their daughter's like accounted for like every moment of the day, um, and know that she's quote unquote safe, uh, and making money than um, just sort of be on her own, you know, um, without, them having their eyes on her. Um, and I thought it was interesting though, because like things do happen, like where girls will run away. Um, sometimes they'll elope with, um, other day workers there. Um, sometimes they'll end up getting pregnant. Like they ran off with a guy, they'll get pregnant and then they'll be abandoned and then they'll end up like coming back and they're kind of forced back into working in these situations to support themselves. Um, and Mills try to really control these interactions. Um, because if there's like one instance of a missing girl and the parents catch wind, it's like, it's, it's a real thing, like a threat threat in quotes to the mills because sometimes parents will come and be like, well, we're taking all our daughters away and then they'll lose their workforce, you know? <laughs> so they're trying to kind of like really control this environment. But of course it's like, these are young girls. Like, you know, they like they're yeah. Like teenagers, like, you know, they're going to be interested in um, people they meet and, you know, they're gonna yeah, wanna, you know? Yeah. so it's just, yeah, it's just that ultimate sort of control. And then the things that happen. And then of course, you know, they do encounter sexual harassment and assault within the mills and silence plays such a huge role um, because there is a negative stereotype sort of projected onto the mill workers that oh mill girls are like promiscuous or whatever. Um, and so then the parents, like even if, you know, maybe their daughter calls them up crying saying she was sexually harassed, they're not going to say anything because they don't want to sort of like shame their family. They don't want to get anyone in trouble, um, especially like if it's a man. Um, so yeah, like all these problems, you know, it, it all just comes down to like, these are vulnerable, you know, children essentially um, with very little rights and very little agency or voice um, to sort of help them navigate the situation. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their parents' mm -hmm. property to give yeah. away and then they become the factory's property property and perhaps they'll get to become their yeah. husband's property. Ab if everything absolutely. goes as planned. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think about this though. And like, of course, you know, we say, okay, well, this sounds like this is like centuries mm -hmm. ago, but like, this is right yeah. now. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is not uncommon around the world for women to be still seen as property, mm -hmm. to be sort of plugged into these yeah. roles because of that, you know, their essential value only being whatever work they can do, the children they can create, yeah. you know, like that, that's yeah. it. And I, uh, I think we've just got a long way to go when I think about the uh, UN's sustainable development mm -hmm. goals and I hear stories like this. I'm like, oh, yeah. we have so far yeah. to go yeah. before 2030 and I, I don't feel optimistic sometimes. Yeah. It's a lot. It's really, really hard. So if you're listening to this by now, you're like, oh my God, now I can't wear cotton <laughs> either. What should I do? <laughs> what are your <laughs> options? Yeah. What are your options? So is there any way to know that your clothes are not made by forced labor, like the forced labor mm -hmm. of these girls. Yeah. So that is, I sort of want to answer that with like a yes and no. Um, <laughs> it always is. You know, it always is. Yes and no. Because <laughs> um, I think, 
it's very, or it's getting slightly easier now to find smaller brands, more local brands where things are made in house. So you know that at least the people sewing your garments, making your garments um, are being paid a fair wage are working in, um, you know, safe, uh, hygienic conditions. Um, but I think product and like textile sourcing itself still has a long way to go um, from my understanding. Uh, And it goes back to what we talked (laughs) about earlier, just with the huge lack of transparency. And I think that just, you know, it it causes these problems to persist because no one is checking that far down uh, the supply chain. They, They aren't. And once again, it goes back to this idea that when you are creating a garment, 60% 60% of the cost is going to mm-hmm. be the fabric. So it's like the biggest financial burden, if you will, to creating product. And so like you don't want – if, and I want to say you. I don't mean you. Right. <laughs> I don't mean me. I don't mean the person who's listening here. Mm-hmm. I mean the person who's in the corporate office yeah. making the decision about what fabric to, to mm-hmm. use. Well, first off, you don't know anything about this right. fabric. Yeah. But like you kind of don't want to know about this mm-hmm. fabric because uh, – to have that fabric not be made by forced labor, mm-hmm. to be ethical across the board, it is going to cost a little bit yeah. more. Would it be a ton more? No, mm-hmm. but the kind of margin targets that you're being pushed to achieve in your day-to-day life, like that fabric being 50 cents more expensive would be devastating. Yeah. It would mean like we, we have to drop the style, yeah. you know? And I think that the industry keeps rolling along in an ignorance is bliss kind of way. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't know, something that I'd encouraged a friend of mine, like she'd reached out to me cause she wanted to buy like this linen dress and it was made in Texas, made like a small brand. Um, and it was like, I think it cost like $125 and she's like, this is the most I've ever spent on a piece of clothing. So I want to like, be sure, like, do you know, like, is this brand ethical? Um, and so I was sort of like searching around on their website a little bit and it was very like ambiguous. And I was like, I can't really tell like what's going on. <laughs> um, so I just told her, I was like, why don't you just email them and just ask them, like, you know, who are your workers? Like, what what are their mm-hmm. conditions? Like, how, you know, what is this? Um, and so she did. And so, you know, and they emailed back. They're like, everyone sort of works in-house. It's a very small staff. Like, they're all treated well. Um, and so she felt good about it. And so she uh, ordered from them. But I'm thinking about that now, too, especially thinking, you know, further down, thinking about textiles. You know, I think it would also be good to sort of send those sorts of emails to places maybe you're potentially thinking about investing from um, and just say, like, where do you source your fabric? You know, do you know anything mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm. And right. you know, see what they say. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest thing we can do right now is ask those questions um, from retailers, you know, big and small, um, and hopefully maybe get some of the gears going and then, you know, even sort of be like, well, Hey, I'm not going to purchase from you. Cause I don't think, you know, this was ethically made. Um, you know, and that could even be kind of the door for a conversation too. Yeah. I think, I think that is a really great idea because right now brands, retailers, they assume that we don't care about mm-hmm. that. That yeah. we don't know that's something to care about. And like I said, most people working for these companies, they don't know either. Yeah. yeah. Because there's no infrastructure in place that provides that transparency. Mm-hmm. Now, are there fabrics out there that are fully transparent to the best of our knowledge? 100%. Mm-hmm. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But what needs to happen is this needs to become the norm right. yeah. instead of the exception. And then – 
it will be easier and easier for all brands and retailers to buy fabric that they know wasn't made using forced right, labor. Right, you know, exactly. We're just not there yeah. right now. Yeah. It's, we're not there. And mm-hmm. so the fabrics that we know for certain yeah. are like to our best, you know, everything comes with to the best of our knowledge. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, humans aren't perfect and who knows who's hiding what. But those fabrics are currently, yes, they are more expensive. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't a huge demand for them. Right. Because retailers don't know that we care about that, that we know about that. Right. Right. I know. I think it's interesting. I haven't looked into this like super deeply, but just when I was in Target the other day, I was like kind of breezing past like the women's section and I saw like in the clothing, they had put like above some of their like really cheap t-shirts, but there was like some little sign saying like sustainably made. And I'm just like, what is that? And then I was like, I could also see how (laughs) this could easily become like more of a greenwashing thing, you know, about fabric and being like, oh, it was quote unquote recycled. And you're like, okay, but was it? I don't know. You know, but yeah, I don't know why I'm going down that road, but that just no, it's so funny because <laughs> I saw those t-shirts recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have been riled about up about it since then. Yeah. Um, those t-shirts are five dollars. Yes, I was I, like, <gasps> Yes, okay. I'm like, no. Every time, no, no. like even yeah. early in the episode when you were talking about like, hey, uh, you know, three percent mm-hmm. of the cost of a yeah. garment goes to the workers. Yeah. Like I I went to the five dollar t-shirt. I was yeah. like, so everybody who made who was involved in making that garment made a, to- a total yeah. of 15 cents. I yes. mean, that's not sustainable, right? And right. I I looked up this shirt, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the rack that I'd seen that was $5. Yeah. And it is partially made of recycled polyester, which means, you know, it comes from mm-hmm. plastic yeah. bottles. Yeah. Um, there actually is not – I mean, there is occasionally, but – overall, not a lot of transparency into even the production of these fabrics made of recycled materials, mm-hmm. like what that supply chain uh-huh. looks like. Yeah. Um, so automatically sketchy. Oh, yeah. That's a whole uh, thing I hadn't even thought about. Yeah. Like yeah, right. Process- and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Where are those so, and then, being made? Like, that's wild. Yeah, because that's exactly Exactly. Wow. Okay. Exactly. And so it was a shirt that is partially made of recycled mm-hmm. PET, and then the rest of it is polyester, which, you know, I just spoke earlier that like, you know, I don't want to go too hard into it because I've just started to read about Uh this, that like polyester, like all these synthetic fabric factories are also like terrible. Yeah. Um, And so you, you know that, and then you're like, oh, and also this shirt is $5. (laughs) Like, Like, oh, so many things. Like, uh, I know, I know. I want to go out and like start vandalizing all those signs. I know. I had to like do a double take. I was like, what? I was like, are you kidding? I don't know. I was like, whatever. And there, those signs are really noticeable Mm -hmm. because I, so the closest pharmacy to where I live is actually in a Target. Okay. The only pharmacy anywhere near here. So mm-hmm. I'd gone in there just to go to the pharmacy and pick up my prescription. Yeah. And walking by, I could see the signs <laughs> yeah. off in the distance mm-hmm. and they were green. And I was like, uh, yeah. Does that green sign say five dollars? Really? Like, there's something going on here. <laughs> and that's when I had to go over and look. <laughs> oh my god, like literal greenwashing at its finest, right? Yeah, there. literally. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I've been really appreciating the uh, Instagram posts on Close Horse about the grain washing and about different fabrics and how they're not as sustainable as everyone says. I think that's great. I'm so glad you're, Thank you're doing you. that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's an educational adventure for me too. Yeah. Because like I said, when you work in the industry, you don't know any mm-hmm. of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like no one tells you this. And yeah. there are so many times that I would go to market 
like especially in the past couple years, every major brand is like, oh, and then come to this rack. Yeah. This is our sustainable collection. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I'd be like, oh my God, yeah. this is great. We should buy all of this, right? right? right yeah. And then slowly I was like, oh, well, what makes it sustainable? And that's when things would get uh, awkward. Yeah. I'd be like, ah, oh, it's uh, you know, it's it's natural, yeah. it's green. And I'd be like, Yeah, but like how? how? And then yeah. after I was like, Okay, never have those conversations. Like, yeah. I just take the pamphlet <laughs> and and yeah. like see what the deal is. Yeah. Um, but Every brand is doing this. Uh, it's interesting because I've seen so much of this at trade shows before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like I, every every major brand you can think of was doing like, and this is our sustainability capsule. Yeah. But I haven't actually, and to be fair, I don't really shop anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen that stuff for sale, yeah. which makes me wonder if like this – I mean, because it's obviously like a cash grab, yeah. like greenwashing. Well, they no one said greenwashing is a trend, but it is. <laughs> it is. But they were like, sustainability is a trend. Absolutely. We'll get there by greenwashing. Yeah. Uh, I kind of wonder after saying like, oh, sustainability is this hot trend. We should develop into it. If maybe retailers were sort of balking at buying into it themselves mm-hmm. because it would be more expensive. I, I just wonder yeah, yeah. if that – I think that's a fair, that's a fair like, assumption, though, because I assume that they probably are marking it up to some degree compared to the other products they would Oh, buy. Yeah. for sure. For yeah. sure. Knowing what I know now about greenwashing and all the fabrics and all the scammy language, <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't – know what they were trying to sell us there. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, in the early days of greenwashing, really greenwashing, well, not greenwashing, Mm -hmm. but like sustainability was synonymous with higher price. Yeah, yeah. Because I would see brands and they would show me their like sustainability line and Mm -hmm. I'd be like, I don't think we can afford that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think our customer will pay for it. It's just too expensive. Right. And now, of course, I'm like, oh, wow, what a scam. Right. Yeah. Unless they were getting scammed too. Yeah. I mean, which is entirely <laughs> possible. <laughs> there's a lot of that going on. So who knows? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. Um, yeah. But just like knowing how cheap some of these fabrics mm-hmm. are to make and stuff. And I'm like, you weren't speaking to the ethics. It seems like yeah. it should have been the same price or cheaper. So, yeah, yeah uh, it will be. I mean, I feel like this is the year that we're going to reach critical mass with greenwashing mm-hmm. and we kind of have this opportunity as consumers to say, uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We care about true sustainable movement towards true sustainability, right. but we don't want your like weird, fake, green bullshit. Oh, yeah. Now, if we, if we don't nip it in the bud now, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. I know. And I feel like they're also developing like so many weird new materials and I'm just like, but what is it? And like, you don't even know, know. like, what are the effects of this? Like 10 years down the line, 20 oh, years, down, you know? know, like I was looking at like, I don't know. I still have like stupid Everlane emails coming into my inbox and I need to get oh. rid of them. They make me but so I was mad. looking at like a pair of sandals and then they said they were made with, it was called like Ava or something. I, that, oh, that, EVA. EVA. Yeah. And I was yeah, like, okay. what is yeah. this? And I was like looking it up and I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> it still just seems like, oh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to break down very well over time. But no, no, definitely yeah. not. Yeah. Definitely not. I mean, I get riled up because a lot of podcasts that I listen to have ads from Allbirds. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. Allbirds is so scammy too. Yeah. And I just, I, like I get enraged. Yeah. I have to like fast forward the commercials, but I, yeah. I feel like right now, like Everlane, Allbirds, yeah. Reformation, these are brands that, like, they're 
they're trading on this currency that they're more premium because yes. they yeah. are quote unquote sustainable yeah. and like none of them are. Yeah. I know. Cause if you look at like Everlane, like they're like, see the factory. And then like you click on it and it's like, this tells me nothing. Like, you I know, know, like there's I a know. graph in the flow charts. So you're like, Oh wow. You know, I'm just like, no, I, I still don't understand. <laughs> like, what is this? Like, where is this being made? Um, yeah, it's really it's really concerning. It's hard because I mean, whenever like Everlane first sort of launched or whatever, like I was like all on board and like you know just so into it. Um, but then, yeah, as I've learned more and more things, I'm like, this is bad. Like this is this is really bad. Yeah, yeah. It uh, Everlane is one where you know when they first hit the scene. It was like if you worked in the industry, Everlane came up in every meeting. Like, mm. how can we bottle what Everlane has? Yeah. You know, yeah. and over time, it was like, uh, what do they have? I ordered one thing from Everlane mm-hmm. ever. It was a yeah. raincoat, and it was after everybody in my office was going <laughs> on and on about how Everlane was the best brand ever, the best way mm-hmm. place to spend your money. Basically, yeah. I got a raincoat, and I was like, this is a piece of shit. Mm, okay. Yeah. This is leaking. It doesn't fit. It was expensive for what it is. As a person who works in the industry, I was like, this fabric is terrible. It's no good, yeah. The trims are terrible. This is fast fashion Mm -hmm. that I just got, like, scammed on. Yeah. So I've bought, like, I do like their pants. There's some of their pants that I I have really liked and that actually fit me because I've had a hard time with that. But I will say, they're again, back to cotton. Everything comes back to cotton. Like, yeah, their cotton's horrible. Like, I <laughs> I had bought, like, one of their stupid, like, air tees or whatever, like, a tank top, and I accidentally put it through the dryer, and it is, like, so warped. And, like, every time I wear uh, it, I have to, like – And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, this was supposed to be, like, air fabric. Like, what is this? Um, yeah, so I just – I feel like – I like their pants, but um, yeah, I just am starting to get really like, ooh, I don't know anymore. I don't, I don't think this is, I don't think this is legit. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to like, what is the sort of like motivation behind Everlane? What was the mm-hmm. plan there all along? Mm-hmm. And the plan there was to like make millions yeah. off of selling quote yeah. unquote sustainable clothes mm-hmm. and basics. And- yeah. I think yeah. if you come in with this idea that like we're going to be the unicorn that makes gazillions of dollars and is highly profitable and just grows and grows and mm-hmm. grows exponentially, there is no way that you will ever be sustainable, right. truly yeah. sustainable, like the true meaning of it because it relies on this idea of just constant growth, yeah. which means overconsumption, which means speeding things up, mm-hmm. convincing people to buy more stuff and just not – having the checks and balances in place. And I know that Everlane was sort of like, we're coming from a tech background. Yeah. We're going to say that like we can, you know, make fast fashion ethical mm-hmm. or whatever. And that is what Reformation will tell oh, you. Like, yeah. we're like we want it to be the mm-hmm. sustainable fast fashion brand. It's like those, those words shouldn't be in a sentence together. Right. right. Yeah. Again, horrible fabrics too. At least the one thing oh. I bought from awful. I was like, this is worse than I bought like in college from Forever 21. You know? Oh my God. <laughs> I know. So the first thing I bought from Reformation was this, it was, this was back when, like the week I started working at Nasty Gals. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a few, it was like, I don't know, like six, seven years ago yeah. now. And I, it was like this dress that laced up. It was very Kim K. Oh, nice. This was the time. Mm -hmm, Okay. mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm so excited. I'm like, I'm going to wear it to my first day at work at Nasty Gal. It looks so good. Everyone's thinking I'm so cool. I get it. And I swear to God, it's made out of the same fabric that like, like a uniform golf shirt, like (gasps) polo shirt would be that like Piquet fabric. 
Ooh, that is like not. I was no. super. I was like, I just spent like hundred and twenty eight dollars uh, on this dress like, made of golf shirt right. fabric. <laughs> like, like you might wear to work at Best Buy right, or something. Yeah. Ugh, like gross. this is not. It was disgusting. Yeah. It made me smelly. It didn't look yeah. good. It didn't wash well. Yeah, and it didn't make sense for the silhouette of the dress. Yeah. The whole thing was such a bummer, and Aww. that started me off on the wrong foot with Raph, mm-hmm. and it, they never, it never really got me back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it, the greenwashing thing, man, it is on my mind yeah. because it is like everywhere right now. Yeah. It's so confusing. It is confusing. Target yeah. getting in there yeah. and like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're like, let me jump in with our $5 shirts. And like, you guys have always had $5 shirts, but now you yeah, have like a little sign that's like, oh, by the way, buy more. I know. I mean, wasn't the gimmick of the $5 shirt that it's $5? Yeah. I didn't know we needed to add this I layer know. onto it. No. Yeah, I, like, I know. Were people not buying them enough? Like, you know, you have to do that. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, greenwashing is taking like our best intentions, like our mm-hmm. innate drive to be good people and turning it into a marketing story. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's infuriating. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's so gross. Uh, yeah. So is there any good stuff going on in India right now that you think could be a weapon mm-hmm. against this exploitation of girls and women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, I think education um, of these girls is key. And um, there is an organization called Bloom India, um, and their their vision is to provide high-quality education to underprivileged children in order to break the bondages of poverty, injustice, and social discrimination. And that's from their website. Um, a friend of mine um, works here in the States um, supporting them and helping with fundraising. Um, and it was really fascinating. She sent me, um, some stats, uh, to share with you guys. Um, she said a third of the world's poor children live in India, um, which is just mind blowing. Wow. Um, yeah. 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 This was taken from their website. Um, but they're planning to plant 10 different schools, like over a decade that would help support, um, children in these sort of at risk situations. Um, and then she herself, like in an email to me sort of outlined what they're doing right now because there is going to be some sort of like shutdown for like day laborers, I think for like about two weeks. And most of the parents of the children there are day laborers. And so if they are not working, they will have absolutely no income. Um, They're already living in poverty. So this is like really crucial. Um, So Bloom India right now, um, all the donations and everything given to them right now is being refocused into, um, you know, food and medical care um, for these families. So I think that's just a really, you know, powerful way that like, you know, your money can go to help, you know, directly help children and their families and keep them out of these desperate situations that they end up in. So, I mean, I love that. We need a lot more of that. It seems like education is one of the missing links here because Mm -hmm. there just aren't opportunities for these girls beyond, you know, this option, you know, like these terrible marriage schemes. Yeah. 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 It's so true. Um, and I just think this is like such important work. Um, and yeah, just trying to get just even just to get the general population like here, you know, in the U.S. as consumers to know about these issues who then could maybe like redirect some of, you know, your fast fashion money towards, you know, helping um, these girls um, not have to to be in those situations. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, I think like one, this is a great place to donate your own money. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great place to suggest 
to other brands and retailers that they yeah. support. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel very strongly that for our reliance on India for you know clothing, accessories, shoes, bags, mm-hmm. belts, all the things, we do not give back to them in the way yeah. that we should. Yeah. It, like specifically when I talk about like the fashion industry, people who are into fashion mm-hmm. and style, mm-hmm. we just don't talk about India. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's totally off the radar. We don't think about it. I know. Yeah. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> it's very yeah. mysterious, but let yeah. me tell you, lots of stuff comes from there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, do you have any like final thoughts or just something you want everyone to know? I guess I'll say... I think just, you know, as we said before, education is important and knowledge is power, um, you know, even for us as consumers. And, you know, when we know more, we can do better. Um, And so I think, you know, with sort of this knowledge and especially, you know, deep diving, a little bit of a deep dive we did into cotton, you know, just think about um, the fabrics you're buying. Think about where they're coming from. Think about, do you really need this? is this a want, you know, is there somewhere else that you could find something similar? Is there, you know, even shopping secondhand, um, supporting someone local who makes clothing, um, repairing your own clothing. I think these are all really great options. Um, along with, you know, just emailing brands, um, you know, or even calling people out on social media, um, you know, big brands and things like that. And just ask them, you know, Where's your fabric coming from? What's your supply chain like? You know, I want to buy from you, but I feel conflicted. You know, share those things. I I think the Mm -hmm. more that those kind of voices are heard, um, you know, maybe there will be more truly sustainable collections that are going to be out on the floor in different stores. So. I love that. I think that's great advice. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Wow. Thank you again, Sarah, for sharing all of your expertise with us. Sarah will hopefully be back for future episodes because she is amazing. And we had such a great time. I know it sounds weird to say we had a great time talking about forced labor and modern slavery, but we really did. (laughs) And I know she's working on some stuff with the blog too. So stay tuned for more, Sarah. There are a few things I just wanted to follow up on that we talked about in our conversation. First off, Let's talk about how we can help India. I'm going to share a link in the show notes that contains a fairly comprehensive list of charities that you can donate to that are addressing a variety of issues that India is struggling with relating to COVID, including PPE for frontline medical workers, shelter for the ill, oxygen, medical care, you name it. This is a catastrophic situation. Please do yourself a favor if you're not re- like up to date on this and just Google India COVID. It is terrifying. And I feel that this situation is so terrible because it's been exacerbated by the prime minister's unwillingness to order another shutdown, I suspect for a multitude of reasons, but maybe the biggest being business economic reasons because you know they are making so much stuff that's being exported around the world. And For certain, our clothes are being made by people right now who are sick or in fear of getting sick and in danger of getting sick. So we rely on India so much. We need to help them out right now. I'm also going to link to the organization that Sarah mentioned. It's called Bloom India. 
They're not only mobilizing to provide digital education to children during the pandemic to keep them safe at home, but also helping to supply underfunded and under-resourced hospitals. So also a good use of any extra money you have lying around. Next, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what I touched on, and you might have missed it in our conversation, which is forced labor in the synthetic textile factories in China. A lot of the conversation about forced labor in China, specifically the forced labor of the Uyghurs, has involved the cotton grown in Xinjiang, often utilizing Uyghur forced labor to cultivate and process that cotton. And any policy changes around Uyghur forced labor have involved the cotton specifically. If you recall, I talked about this a while back. In January, the U.S. banned imports of cotton from Xinjiang, but As I also mentioned, that's not a quick fix because a lot of the cotton grown in China is exported to other countries in Asia where it's made into clothing. So you might buy something that says made in Bangladesh, for example, but that might be made of Uyghur cotton. So it's not a cure, right? But there's another thing to think about. 60 to 75% of the world's synthetic fabrics are made in China. And 65% of all the clothing made today is made of synthetic fabrics. So synthetic fabrics are actually a bigger issue than cotton that has not been addressed. So the question is, is forced labor involved in that? Well, I have to tell you, I'm still working hard to dig up more research on this. It's been a little bit of an obsession for me lately, but I'm going to tell you that progress has been slow. Nobody's talking about the Uyghurs, not to the extent that we should be. I can tell you that. And we're certainly not talking enough about how it's connected to all the things we buy, all the things we buy, not just clothes even. So I'm continuing to work on this. I started to think about this last month when I came across an article about viscose slash rayon written by a textile expert who mentioned that the synthetic fabric factories in China are infamous for their use of forced labor and child labor and just abysmal working conditions. And that would include the man-made, quote, natural fabrics like rayon, viscose, which are made from tree pulp. So finding out more became an obsession And I just want to add here, before I continue, that while the Uyghurs are a massive group being imprisoned and forced to work, China has also been using the forced labor of the Tibetans for a very long time. We're talking decades and decades. And really, any prisoner, even political distance, they are also used for forced labor. This week, I did find an article from April, so just a few weeks ago, about a Finnish supplier who cut ties with a factory in Xinjiang for suspected forced labor. And this article from Radio Free Asia said, On March 29th, Stora Enzo, the world's largest pulp and paper supplier, stopped providing the materials needed to produce viscose. As I mentioned, viscose is a type of rayon fiber, a fabric that resembles cotton, but is synthetically produced from cellulose or wood pulp. Stora Enzo was supplying all of this raw material to a company called Zongtai Chemical Co. Limited. From 2017 to 2020, Zongtai had imported over 
$367 million worth of raw materials from Finland, from Stora Enso. Zongtai Chemical is a state-owned enterprise, meaning owned by China, the Chinese government, closely associated with the paramilitary Xinjiang Projection and Construction Corps, and it is the main supplier of viscose fibers to Chinese cotton and textile factories throughout China. Because, yes, you can buy 100% viscose clothing, but remember, viscose is also blended with a lot of things, especially cotton. And I'm just going to throw this out here. Viscose and viscose cotton blends are a major part of a lot of these sort of greenwashed fabrics that fast fashion retailers are offering us right now as proof that they are more sustainable. It's estimated that 20% of all of the viscose fiber products made globally every year are made in Xinjiang. And as a refresher, Xinjiang is where the Uyghurs have been living in these like, well, they're concentration camps, but they like to call them re-education camps. They're painting it as if it's like a delightful boarding school. (laughs) And Zongtai itself, that company, produced 730,000 tons of viscose in 2020 alone. A lot of fabric. Stora Enso, the Finnish company that is no longer supplying them, is not officially saying that they ended the relationship over the forced labor issue. But then again, they aren't saying that it isn't the reason. But the tie between Uyghur labor and Zongtai Chemical is very clear. Even reports in Chinese media have shown that the company has funneled Uyghur laborers throughout its labor transfer system, moving them across the country from factory to factory. And furthermore, Previous reporting has indicated that Xinjiang Zongtai Textile Company, a, not surprising, a subsidiary of Zongtai Chemical, was trading Xinjiang cotton and cotton products. So the connection becomes clearer and clearer as you dig deeper. Right now, Zongtai will have to ship into manufacturing something else if it can't find a new supplier of the raw materials it needs. So let's just take a moment to kind of recap what we just talked about. So we know from previous episodes where I've talked about this, that Uyghur workers are not only being forced to cultivate cotton, process cotton, and work in factories in Xinjiang. They've also been moved across the country to work in other factories. We know that this company, Zongtai Chemical, makes a big chunk of synthetic fabrics, specifically viscose, in Xinjiang. And its subsidiary textile company is using Xinjiang cotton, you know, processing it, growing it, all of that stuff. That means that, at the very least, the textile part of the company was definitely using Uyghur labor. But it seems very likely, based on other information, based on the Chinese press itself, that... Uyghur labor is also being used to make the viscose products. Viscose being a very common fabric. Gosh, I was looking at H&M's latest conscious collection and there was so much viscose in there. So like everything else with the Uyghurs, you know, you're right. We don't have a man on the scene who has seen the transaction go down exactly and is exactly seen the Uyghur workers making the viscose. But the trail of evidence makes it pretty clear that that is happening. This embargo on Zongtai, 
may slow its viscose production for a while until they find someone else to be a supplier. In that way, it makes a small impact, but it's just not enough because none of the global brands like Nike, H&M, Zara, really any brand selling clothing or textiles right now on a large scale isn't doing the work to figure out who's making their fabrics and products. I think that that is willful ignorance because it's not going to be a good story what they discover, and it's going to take a lot of work and money to get to the bottom of it. Asiye Abdullahed is a Uyghur activist and analyst in the Netherlands, said, if the international community really wants to fix this situation to stop Uyghur slave labor, we must clarify China's entire supply chain and discern to what level the use of forced labor has risen. The supply chain is spun like a spider web. Only when the supply chain and circles of supply are broken will a situation that is favorable to Uyghurs and strikes a blow to China take shape. So yes, cutting off the raw materials for viscose is a great start, but there's just so much work to be done. I just want to take a moment here and remind you of the grim reality of these Uyghur Muslims. They are human beings, just like all of us. All of the same things are important to them. They are taken away from their families, from their lives they know, from their friends. They are imprisoned. They are forbidden from practicing their own religion. They are forced to work. They are tortured, beaten, sexually assaulted. They have no freedom. And yes, Some of them die in captivity. Many, many more will. It's not okay. Right now, brands are backing down from any stance that they had taken against China and the use of forced labor because they are afraid of business repercussions. And the biggest stand any of them took was putting a statement on their websites, which they've now taken down. Once again, what really needs to happen So we need to untangle the supply chain and figure out where the forced labor is happening. And I'm just going to say this again. China has been using forced labor for a very long time. The Uyghurs are a big part of that, but there are so many other people who are being forced to work in factories, to pick cotton, to do God knows what else. They have no freedom. We need to force brands to do the right thing here. Unfortunately, they have to be more afraid of us than they are of China. And that's, that's a big ask. <laughs> that means we have to be very loud and very persistent. And once again, there's just not enough attention being given to this in the media, whether it's the fashion media or the regular old news media. It's just not happening. And this is so important. I know You don't want people to suffer to make your clothes. You don't want clothes that were made by people who are enslaved, who are unable to have any freedom, who are ripped from their families, not allowed to practice their religion, harmed physically and mentally. You don't don't want that. So I have a challenge for you. I would like you, yes, you, I'm talking directly to you right now, to every day for the next week, tweet at five major global brands every day. Nike, Zara, H&M, 
Forever 21, Urban Outfitters, Nordstrom, Macy's, Target, whatever, pick five, and either tweet at them or comment on the Instagrams and say, what are you doing to ensure there is no Uyghur forced labor in your supply chain? Followed by the hashtag Uyghur Lives Matter. I'm going to be doing it too. And we'll see how it goes for the next week. And maybe we'll keep it going after that. Maybe we can really make something happen here because nothing is happening. This action can be really beneficial because for one, it reminds retailers that we care. And two, other people see it and they get interested in what we're talking about. And then we get to tell them what we're talking about. And then they know and they can join the action too. Because this is not widely known information. And I've been waiting for someone to make this happen. And it's just not happening. And so I'm like, okay, I guess Clothes Horse is going to make this happen. So I'm going to be sharing all of my actions with you this week. Please share your screenshots of your tweets or your comments on Instagram in your stories so other people see it and tag me so I can see it and share it or send them via DM because I want to share them with the rest of the community because if one person sees you doing it, they're going to feel empowered to do it too. And I know that this is not the biggest thing that could be done for the Uyghurs right now, but we don't have anything else in our grasp right now. So let's start here. Let's spread the word. Let's let retailers know we're thinking about it. Let's get other people involved by seeing our action. It's got to start somewhere. And I just think so few people know what's happening. It's up to us. Let's make it happen. Let's make this labor month extra super count by protecting other humans from exploitation and abuse. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get out there. It raises us in the algorithm. It brings in more listeners. And of course, I it always makes my day when I see a review. And tell your friends to listen. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. Every Friday, I've been doing an Instagram Live where I take questions. We talk about some stuff. Maybe this week we'll talk about the Uyghurs. I'm not sure yet. It's only Wednesday. Um, but check that out. And if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll link to that in the show notes. Don't forget to listen to my other show, The Department with Kim. We just did a really great hotline episode where we took a bunch of online dating stories. It was so fun. So check that out. And thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 